0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Nat Alliance Now. I'm your host, Jay Williams, and this week we have the third installment of our Cyber Risk Series with Paul Burkett. If you haven't heard our first two parts, check them out at scic.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, I hope you enjoy my third conversation with the amazing Paul Burkett. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're back again with Paul Burkett. And Paul, you know, in our first two installments, uh, we looked at the need for cyber coverage, uh, and then we talked about the risk management process related to cyber exposure. So today, we're going to talk about risk transfer. And before we get into cyber insurance, which is a transfer mechanism, let's talk about non-insurance risk transfer.
1: That's a great idea, and I think we should probably use an example just to give you an idea of some of the dynamics of contracts and the contract transfers. Basically, we're talking about indemnification and hold harmless. So let's talk about an online retailer that has a contract with an e-commerce or a technology company that's going to provide some service. They're going to design the retailer's website. They're going to maintain and secure the retailer's website. They're going to process orders through the website, and they're going to help store retailers' customer data, and it's going to be in a uh, cloud-type environment on that. So in this situation, the e-commerce transaction provider has some potential negligence that they're going to create and some loss uh, scenarios that are going to impact the retailer. And the retailer, in a risk transfer through contract, wants to limit Uh, these loss scenarios as much as possible. And so that's what's going to be in the contract to the service provider. The areas that are going to create exposure, as we've talked about under the risk management and also in the risk identification process, is content liability. The items that are going to be on the website and included in that potential uh, infringement and trademark infringement, copyright infringement, logos and designs that can create items even though they're not the same, can be viewed by the competitor as a violation of intellectual property. So the content liability can be a negligent situation creating problems for the retailer. Then we have the data breach causing privacy claims. And this is where they have to put the proper security around the name of the clients, the credit card transactions, uh, the addresses, mailing addresses, and any other key identifiers of these individuals that are non-public that have to be protected. And through that, again, we get into what we call the first-party exposures of the data privacy breach, the notification costs, the bringing in of the forensics, the fines and penalties, state regulators coming in and regulatory proceedings type stuff that we've talked about before. So we've got two of the elements right there. Then we have the data asset and business interruption loss. The order taking may be infected with a virus. We talked about ransomware and the ability to conduct business. So we may have a business income uh, situation. And any time that you have a situation where you're denied access, you have downtime where you have to restore the data. You have to fix the problem. And through that, you're going to have loss of data, and you're going to have a business interruption, and how do we pay for that? And then the downtime creates problems where you got to run tests, malfunctions, make sure it's working, make sure the website is up and operating. Hopefully the website was an HTTPS website with good SQL protection brought into it, but if not, they may have to modify it to do that. That may be a requirement of the... Uh, elements of the regulator saying you've got to change your design and other items, so now you've got to do rectification of the uh, work. And so these are all exposures that are created by this provider doing work for the retailer. The retailer as a purchaser of these technology products would require and try to require that the assumption of full liability for these losses would be transferred to the technology company and through that commerce transaction and so in these four types of loss scenarios you want to know that you have good and adequate indemnification now the key issue here with indemnification and risk transfer always goes back to the fundamental question can that other party pay for it which then triggers another question did you mandate some kind of insurance coverage for the technology company. Did you require the technology company to have a technology air's and emissions policy? Did you require them to have some kind of a media or content liability coverage? Did you require them to have some kind of third-party cyber coverage for the care, custody, or control of the data that they would be manipulating and working? So you can see that we're going to have the contractual transfer elements in here, but also you're going to see some insurance language elements that are going to come in here, as well as we start to look through this. The first item is, of course, the always general indemnity clause. Well, you and I all know it as the hold harmless and indemnification clauses we've seen in a lot of contracts. And so in looking at that, the technology vendor cannot limit its liability for BI or PD or privacy liability or business interruption. That's what you're going to demand and that they're going to go ahead and tell the retailer that we're going to fully indemnify you and pay for all your liabilities created by the negligence and those four items we discussed. We need to have, however, some kind of intellectual property indemnity clause because we now have a website that contains trademark copyright uh, infringement exposures and claims that go on to it, and that creates another dynamic Onto the technology company in terms if they agree to the intellectual property indemnity clause, how are they going to pay for the infringement on the intellectual property indemnity clause? It may not be covered under the tech E&O policy. They may have to have some kind of intellectual property defense coverage that's brought in, which is a separate item, which highlights another dynamic. If your client's the technology provider in this case, but as the retailer, I would want to have the intellectual property indemnity clause. And then there's the financial loss indemnity clause, which basically comes in and says, you're going to pay for all of my losses, including my regulatory proceeding, attorney's fees, and other items. Well, the this is where the pushback will come from the technology side. They're going to come back and say, hey, look, we're going to try to limit this. We're not going to allow that. So where we are in this indemnity is for the negligence of the transaction that brought it about. And so in this, we want to make sure we have content liability coverage for financial loss, the data breach, the reconstitution or rebuilding of the database, and the business interruption created by the negligence by the technology company. We want them to pay us for that, indemnify that. And it should be permitted that they have it. And, of course, as the retailer, you've got to make sure they have the financial capability to do such. The breach of privacy indemnity, the technology company is going to do a pushback. They're going to do a pushback in the sense that they're going to say to the retailer, hey, look, I only want insurance recourse coverage. In other words, if I've got the insurance, that's all you're going to get. You don't want to see language that says that. Or you may see language that says, hey, look, we're not going to be liable more than a million dollars or no more than 500000 You don't want any kind of monetary cap showing up in that indemnification. And some even will come in and do loss limit to a specific time period where they say, well, we're only responsible for six months, which is in violation of the statute of repose. Uh, for any completed operation exposure. So you don't want to have limitations on the specific time period when you start looking at these breach of privacy indemnification type clauses. The retailer should strongly oppose any kind of language that says available insurance only. It should definitely not want to see capping. And also in the e-commerce transaction, you're going to have to understand that they're going to have a tech E&O policy, and you're going to have to ask yourself, is that an adequate amount? I have a client who is uh, doing vendor work for a hospital, and the hospital requires that he has a tech E&O policy of $25 million. Well, can you see then this retailer, what should they require? What should they go into it? And again, who's your client? Is your client the retailer or the tech E&O? And so there's going to be a give back and forth here about this kind of non-insurance transfer language that's going to come into these policies. Under the specific monetary issue, you definitely want a cap. You don't want, from the retailer standpoint, to come in and do that. Because we know that we're having a lot of significant costs in terms of notification costs, credit monitoring, Uh, and the elements of attorney's fees and such and So a monetary cap can be very damaging to the overall operation. In other words, what I'm trying to do for the retailer is trying to make their policy, their uh, cyber policy, to be excess above what the tech and the vendor is providing on that. And that's what you want to do. So you've got to monitor these kind of contract issues and have that discussion. Uh, Time periods are nasty items. We've seen people come in with... uh, Six months, 24 hours, one year, and again, uh, the statute of repose in a lot of states are five years or up to 20 years for the discovery of a failure. And think about what are we talking about here coding, programming, and programming errors, and they don't get readily found out. And as we found out that knowing whether you've been hacked, you may not know until about 340 days, you can, you know, or 280 days, you've got a problem here, and to look into And think about time limits and time limit issues in terms of that. The other items that you have to look at is you want to make sure that they have good financial security, the tech E&O company. You want to make sure that they know how to indemnify, how you can negotiate that. problem we have, and I've seen it on some of these retailers uh, and insurance agents, too, who have outside vendors that are providing the service, you haven't even examined these contracts and determine what liability you've got. I saw one agency I did an audit on where they have an outside vendor doing services on their program, and they are primary, and they have named the vendor as an additional insured, and they're indemnifying the vendor who's doing the work. Don't you think we should be a little fairer in this type of give and take on the indemnification? What this really tells, and it underscores to us, is the need to obtain insurance that they can modestly pay for damages they cause to yourself. And that means we want to know they got a good tech E&O policy, they have a good care or control or third-party cyber liability, they have some content or website professional liability coverage uh, that's going to be in place to fund the non-insurance transfer. And that's why we started out with a discussion about the non-insurance transfer, because it does become an important component to the insurance policies we've got to discuss because one of the elements in the insurance policies does it cover the assumption of liability under contract, and you can see the the importance of all of that.
0: Well, that kind of leads us into the transfer of risk into the insurance policy. So, obviously, when we're when we're transferring to insurance, it always starts from an un, you know at, at an underwriting level. So. Take us through the underwriting process, and what does an underwriter need when an agent is submitting business?
1: Well, the underwriter, first off, starts out with a completed application or some indications. But let's stop right there. Some carriers will do an indication, and they'll do an indication by answering anywhere between four to ten questions. But the indication is very, very preliminary. And it gives you some rough parameters, but they always have the subject twos in these indications and the subject twos. These are subject to a completed application and this, this, and this. And so knowing that you may get an indication is no real hard item that it's been underwritten. So please understand, indications are not underwriting. Underwriting is done when a full completed application is provided. And it's a full Application indicating the elements of what coverages does the client want. Remember, back to our risk identification side. And so, what we have here is the problem of new buyers and new buyers who have not bought coverage before now going into a new arena. And this is a new challenge for the underwriter. They're going to go, okay, what was your historical? element? What did you have in the past? And that's why most of the contracts, and I'm going to tell you 99.9% of them are claims made contracts. And that's why they're not going to pick up the prior acts or prior litigation situations or problems for the cyber exposures onto that. Uh, We are now just starting to get substantial historical loss data to take a look at and to affirm or actuarially affirm the pricing that's out there. So what we know right now is a lot of the pricing that underwriters are giving are subjective and highly dependent upon their individual judgment. We're getting some good experienced underwriters out there that have a good understanding of what's going on. The premiums that are going to be developed for the exposure are going to be based upon the receipts, and it's going to be about a $1,000 of gross receipts with a specific rate. Uh, The policies themselves are not auditable policies, but the renewals will be based on changes in gross receipts. And so you may see premium increases just based on the change in receipts or gross receipts for a client. What we do know is that pricing and premium and underwriting is done usually by the insuring agreements. How many insuring agreements is the client going into? That goes back to the application. If the insurance imp- application said that I want network and information security liability for $5 million, then they will rate what network information security liability would be. If you want a communications and media liability as an insuring agreement, then there will be a premium charge and a limit established for the communications and media liability. If you want regulatory defense expense, there will be a premium charge and a rate that will be applied to the limits that you will apply for the regulatory defense. And it's the same for crisis management, security breach remediation and notification costs, computer program and electronic data restoration expenses. If you're going to bring in the computer fraud and maybe social engineering, you have that as well, funds transfer fraud, e-commerce extortion, and then lastly, the business interruption and additional expenses. Each insuring agreement has a rate, has a premium that will be charged based upon gross receipts that establishes, with the limit selected, what will be charged for that item. So you may have separate limits, you may have an aggregate limit upon their rating methodology that will be used. Some of the underwriters will go in and start out by doing a hazard rate. They'll say, okay, you're a retailer, you're a contractor you're an educational institution, you're a hospital, and these hazard classes also have a rate. And so the rate differential may start depending on the hazard class, and that's why those are questions on the application. Uh, What do they do? What are they, what's their operation, and how are they segregated? And they try to arrive at a rate. And a lot of times the rating structure may be in large elements. You may have different rate classes. Or hazard classifications based on the size. And then, like hospitals, hospitals are rated on the number of beds. And so, you may have a small regional hospital that has only 100 beds, may have a different premium development or rate than somebody who's got 1,000 beds uh, in terms of that. And remember, in our first analysis about the exposure, hospitals and the medical area are the largest uh, risk factor on this and have the largest cost. And so you can anticipate very high rates within the hospital classification, and that's what the underwriters will do. Then they'll add in a couple of other significant elements that come off the application. They want to know what are the network security measures. And by the way, the application is a warranty application, and that means if you say you do these security measures and it's determined at the time of loss that you're not doing those, It may be grounds for voiding coverage. So it becomes very important that the client understand this is a warranty application and they're truly disclosing information the underwriter is significantly relying upon to establish the rate methodology. So the network security measures become important. Personnel policies, procedures, training programs uh, are asked on the applications. They want to know about that. They want to know what you're doing on information security for the website, PDFs, uh, also password control, uh, and other items into that. They want to know what's on your website, the content information. Most underwriters will go to the website, so that's why they want the application to indicate the address of the website so they can go look at it. The hazard group or the industry that they're in will be another consideration in terms of where they will go with rate. And in looking at industry, they'll go back to that probability curve, and they'll look at it and say, okay, we know that these types of industries have a less probability of having a loss as versus the hospital or educational institutions. For instance, we know contractors are on the low end of potential hazards, so they get a lower rate. Uh, Then the extent of the contractual transfer, that risk transfer stuff we just talked about. What kind of contracts are they signing? What are they agreeing to? What are they agreeing to in the indemnification? This has a huge impact on whether you will get contractual liability coverage under the cyber form, and that becomes important. And the last one, of course, is loss history. And lost history, we cannot forget. I mean, they want to know what's going on in all of those categories. So when we look at lost history, surprisingly, it's not the severity that drives the concerns for the underwriters. It's the frequency. How often are you being hit with viruses? How often do you have to fix your computer? How often are you getting hit with malware that you have to go in and fix? How often are you having problems on password or password uh, violations? So they want to know about the frequency. So they want to know about the details of prior losses. They want to know how many accesses have come in by unauthorized access. They want to know about the dissemination of content via the websites, emails, PDFs, Dropbox, items such as wire transfers, online transfers, banking arrangements. So they want to know about the dissemination of content. How many times have you had an extortion attempt? How many times have you been hit with ransomware? Uh, What have you done about the ransomware in terms of that? And then have there been any denial of service or security breaches? And then they want to have some idea about the the circumstances of the incident, how it was fixed, who did it, and maybe even know what kind of forensic uh, report was done to go in and rectify the problem so that it doesn't repeat itself. And the rectification issue is really going to become very, very important in terms of that. That's the kind of underwriting mentality that's going on out there that we talk about on an ongoing basis.
0: You know, it's amazing to me, Paul, you know, how much the application process has evolved uh, over time. I can remember back, you know, four, five, six years ago when the applications were relatively short and now they're really long because there's so much more information that an underwriter needs than they used to. So now the agent has filled out the application and they've gotten their prospect through the underwriting process and, and we're thinking about coverage, I know, you know, it, from an industry perspective, we've always had a tendency to call this cyber liability coverage, but, but it's really bigger than that, a lot bigger than that. So where does an agent start and what do they look for when they're looking for coverage for their, for their customer?
1: Well, first you start out with the understanding that the commercial general liability form is not <laughs> going to protect you and also to understand that the commercial property policy is not going to protect you, the EDP policy is not going to protect you, Uh, the equipment breakdown policy is not going to protect you, and you're not going to have any coverage in the property policies that we've talked about. So, yeah, very important to understand. The typical contracts, the standardized coverage forms we've had are not going to be there, so we're going to have to look to a, a cyber or privacy insurance type program But it has both first- and third-party exposures that we have to look into and provide the coverage. The elements are broken into broad categories, and I'm going to try to break them into this way for quick memory. There's going to be the first-party post-breach response. These are the privacy notification, crisis management, identity theft, could be also in terms of that regulatory proceeding. So you're going to have those post-breach type exposures. Then the party that got breached, they're going to have liability where they're going to pursue action against you. So you're going to have third-party liability coverages of information security, privacy liability, regulatory defense and penalties may be included, payment card industry fines and assessments, website media or content liability or website publishing liability, and then some bodily injury and property damage liability coordination that we have to do with the CGL. And then we're going to have the inter- interruption of work, the time elements. So we're going to have to think about the business interruption and extra expense, another first-party coverage. And then we have the theft uh, exposures of the property. So we're going to have data asset theft, cyber extortion, computer fraud, funds transfer, social engineering, and fraudulent instruction coverage that we all have to bring into this thing. So it's not just a single monoline type coverage. It is a robust multi-level of coverage. We've got to have first party coverages and third party coverages. And that's why we have these multiple insuring agreements that we have to look into. And then through those insuring agreements, we have the insuring agreements that are pay on behalf of, or we will indemnify or reimburse. And those also overlay in terms of the first-party post-breach, third-party liability, first-party time element, and first-party theft or property coverage as you start to look at how the policies are going to respond. The privacy notification and crisis management expenses have been a big issue, and they have grown on the data breach side of this. We have gave you some information in the first session about the average cost per record Uh, and what it costs to deal with the notification and crisis management and also some of the business income that's lost on that. Most privacy notification and crisis management expenses are functions of loss containment or loss minimization or what we call claims mitigation, and they become very important components of the overall process. And there are specific items under the first-party cyber coverage that we have to look at and understand with some clarity. First off is, before we can even determine what occurred, we have to bring in somebody to at least come in and analyze and be able to secure the information system immediately following the breach so no further breaches can take place. Then determine what was the cause of the breach, then to provide advice on how to prevent future breaches. Now, this computer forensics, originally was just to find the problem. And a lot of it did not include fixing the problem. The computer forensics say, here's your report, now you've got to go fix it. Well, now that you're subject then to the elements of the regulatory agency coming in and saying, well, you've got to fix this, and that becomes an additional cost. So some of the computer forensic language we deal with talks about finding the problem and fixing the problem or rectification. And then included in that, has been a f- couple of items called the PCI DSS, with the Payment Card Industry Data Security Audit, to get you recertified so you can take in computer card, computer uh, credit card transactions. So computer forensics has gotten pretty broad, and it varies uh, in its robustness of coverage. Then we get the public relations. And we're not going to go in and fix your public relations. We're going to give you advice and consulting on things you may want to consider about your public relations. And then some states require call centers, some states require websites, some require both, and you have to be able to handle and set those up. And a lot of times that's part of what the insurance company is going to provide as a service or has already established with a provider uh, under their item. Choose these providers to do that uh, in terms of that. Then the notification for PII information that's been compromised. The credit monitoring affecting the customer's credit, usually for one year, can be two years in a couple of states. And then you got the identity monitoring and the credit monitoring, and then the bad actor situation, and then we have to go in and do the identity response type items. And then we have the bank's notification, notifying the banks and the credit card companies as we go into it so you can see the breach response is very broad uh... give you some idea of some language that are out there uh... there may be language that says attorneys breach privacy coach somebody who you're going to help you work through that and these are access type language for the wrongful act uh... you'll see language that says forensics or conduct the forensic analysis. You may see a specific language called public relations or crisis management uh, as you start to look at that. There may be specific items called notification expenses, identity monitoring, credit freeze and thaw, and of course the PCI payment card industry fines and penalties. The problem with all these first-party and breach response coverages, some of them have sublimits. And so we have to look at the sublimits and say, well, wait a minute, is this adequate? Uh, for example, under the Beasley, under the notification expense, you can buy it based on the number of records. Well, how many records could be possibly uh, out there at a given time? And that has an impact on the total amount of cost or coverage that you're going to have. So understand that this is a sublimit area, and these sublimit areas can be problematic. And you're going to then have to look at these sublimits and then how they aggregate and how the aggregation works in these first-party breach response type coverages. You're going to have to closely evaluate uh, what is excluded because generally when you look at the exclusions in the privacy breach expense area, there may be some items in here you thought you had coverage for. For example, I saw in one form, where they said fines and penalties was excluded, and I said, "Wait a minute! I thought we bought fines and penalty coverage uh, as part of the claims mitigation coverage, and we had to get that corrected." So I'm just highlighting: need to spend time on the privacy breach expenses, items that you may typically see excluded, could be remuneration, salaries, wages, fees, overhead, benefits. You may see any uh, costs or expenses to improve or fix the computer system. In other, for other words, there's no rectification cost. You may see items that they says we're not going to pay anything that involves trade secrets and fixing the trade secrets. We're not going to cover any type of liability coverage for third party because this is a first party, so that has to go over there. You may see language that says, we're not going to cover the PCI fines and penalties, the payment card industry fines and penalties. And then you'll see definitely language that'll say, we're not going to cover anything that's under other insuring agreements in the policy I'll go into it. And the last one is always the consequential loss or damage, uh, which basically says, no, no, we got to have something that's definitive and valued, not to have anything in terms of loss of market share or anything like that will not be brought in as a coverage. So the first party in breach response is a complex coverage, sublimits, and uh, expenses or excluded items that bring you into that. Then you get into the liability side of it and you start to go and say, okay, what do we have here? Do I have a pay on behalf? Do I have a reimbursement? Recognizing that on the liability side, third party, that a pay on behalf is more expensive than the reimbursement side of that. And you have to understand the differences that are on that. And again, these are all contracts. Each have to be read individually. Each insuring agreement has to be looked at. And basically, it establishes that legal liability will be determined by a judgment of the court or the insured agrees to make a settlement in response to a lawsuit. So some kind of a lawsuit is brought in. Now, the key here is the third-party liability is as civil lawsuit is filed. Regulatory proceeding is an administrative hearing, and that is not considered a lawsuit. So administrative hearing is going to be a first-party coverage, where the lawsuit is going to be a third-party coverage, and that's one of the things to remember as you start to look into it. The third-party liability usually always relates to personal identifiable information that is non-public that has been disclosed. Well... We do know that we have to give notification because of the regulatory requirements in all of the states and the federal uh, government here in the U.S. as well as other countries. So we do know that in essence, that's going to be a compromise, a voluntary act in violation of the law, which then creates that we have a legal responsibility to deal with that. And so if a lawsuit comes about because of that, we will have to deal with it now today. On the larger companies, we're seeing class action lawsuits going against the insured uh, for this versus an individual uh, bringing it in because a class action is an easier argument to work with for the violation of the PII. So what you're going to see in typical insuring agreements for information security and privacy liability is failure to prevent the loss, theft, or unauthorized disclosure of personal identifiable information. Failure of an insured to prevent damage to stored data on their computer system, or the transmission of malicious code from the insured's computer to a third-party computer, or denial of service attacks to a third-party's computer system. We'll also have failure to timely disclose a data breach in violation of any breach of notification law. And then we'll have failure to comply with your own privacy policies within the organization, the disclosure, sharing, or selling of personal identifiable information, failure to correct incomplete or inaccurate PII, or failure to prevent the loss of personal identifiable public information, which gets us really into the CAN-SPAM Act, the Telemarketing Act, and some coverage forms will not give you coverage for the CAN-SPAM or Telemarketing Act, and so you may need to do modifications to bring in the privacy policy requirements, and get that as a covered item into that. A few insurers will also say that we'll provide coverage if there's an actual theft of data, but a lot of them are saying, no, no, theft of data is going to be a first-party coverage and not a third party, And but they will provide maybe some kind of coverage for a virus that you then send off to somebody else to corrupt their system or you send a notice off to denial a service attack to someone else. So the element is, what are you doing to others is what they may or may not bring into, and you're going to have to ask about those electronic intrusions and disruptions that we're doing to others as we start to bring in the third-party liability coverage in terms of that. So you're going to see strange language. You're going to see an insuring agreement that may say security and privacy liability coverage You'll have definitions like Security Wrongful Act, you may have Privacy Wrongful Act, then you'll see language that talks about defense, and defense was usually be inside the limit as you start to look into it. So language like Security Wrongful Act, what is that? Well, that's the theft, alteration, destruction, or unauthorized release of electronic data or the denial of authorized users. Or you may have the Privacy Wrongful Act, which is somehow you are legally responsible for letting this event take place and sending information out. So you're gonna have a liability and a first party going on. And these are gonna be typical in your first party, but we have other coverages that come in as well.
0: So that's a lot to unpack. And when you think about it, Pauline, between the non insurance transfer. And then the insurance transfer and the underwriting process and then getting into first and third party coverage, that's a, there's, a, there's a lot of information for agents to unpack. Would you agree?
1: I agree with you 100%. And the biggest problem we have is there's no standardization. Uh, we're going to have commonality in the sense there's going to be insuring agreements, exclusions, conditions, uh, and also elements of uh, definitions of defense expense claims expense but the reality is each one of those has to be read as you try to understand Reading them.
0: and comparing is what insurance nerds do best <laughs> so yes all right that's it for this episode of nat alliance now's cyber risk series what you've heard today is actually only the first part of that conversation we decided to split this part of the topic into two sessions We'll be bringing you the second half in part four. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Net Alliance Now.